Hello, and welcome to Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health, a podcast series all about meaningful dialogue and connections between humanities and medicine. Welcome to Season 2. As promised, we are back once again with even more conversations about arts, humanities and health. For the season premiere, we had the fortune of hosting Professor Paul Crawford from the University of Nottingham. What you're about to hear is an edited recording of an online event that took place on the 22nd of September 2021 in front of a live audience. You will hear the co-organiser of this project, Dr. Dieter de Klerk and Professor Ian Sabro, talking to Paul about his work as the world's first Professor of Health Humanities. You will also hear about Paul's recent campaign called What's Up With Everyone? What's Up With Everyone is a collaboration with the award-winning animation studio Aardman, famous for their beloved stop-motion animation characters Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep. Check out the episode description for a link to this campaign. That's all from me. Over to Dieter, Ian and Paul. Welcome, everyone. Uh, Welcome to our second season of Conversations about Arts, Humanities and Health, and especially welcome to our guest of today, Paul. We're really happy that you could join us today. So I'm Dieter de Klerk. I'm a lecturer in Film and Media Studies at the University of Kent. And together with Ian, we run this series of conversations and our digital producer, David Brown, is lurking in the background, making sure that everything works fine. So what we're doing in this conversation series is we're talking about how arts and humanities can inform healthcare and we're trying to find meaningful dialogue and connection between medicine and humanities. And we're very grateful that Paul could join us to talk about his pioneering work in health humanities today. And I'll gladly hand over to Ian. Well, hi and um, welcome all of you. It's really lovely to be doing a second season of these and they still slightly terrify me whenever we start one and then I find just how wonderful and rewarding it is. So thank you for being part of this journey with us. It's a huge pleasure today to welcome uh, Paul Crawford. So Paul Crawford is Professor of Health Humanities at Nottingham and Director of the Centre for Social of Social Futures. I've come across Paul many times through his founding work in the field of health humanities, and I think it was Paul that fundamentally termed that specific, uh, coined that specific term of health humanities, which is something I'm going to be really looking forward to talking to him about now. When I've spoken to him, I've always been struck by his joy and his passion and uh, the way that the work that he does is both um, out there and changing things in the world around him. It feels to me like he sometimes democratises the humanities. And uh, his work has led to uh, numerous books that you'll have seen, like the um, Routledge Companion to Health Humanities. He's blogged on the impacts of COVID um, and the moving of life online in the last few years. Creativity and cabin fever during COVID have been his topics amongst other things, um, his work with leading animators to produce new resources to explore issues around mental health have all been exceptional. So um, we welcome Paul and just say it's really lovely to uh, speak with you today. And just going to start off by saying, tell us a bit about why health humanities, what brings you to to the world health humanities and, and brings you to talk to us today? Thanks, Ian and Dieter and David for bringing me in for a conversation And, you know, I'll always aim for a joyful conversation because, you know, the clues in the the word joy and anything we're doing, whether it's in health humanities, which is all about the arts and humanities informing and transforming healthcare, health and well-being, or whether we're in other areas of work, the the joy should keep us in the right direction. Uh, What we find joyful 
and where we get our pleasures, where we get our hope for the future. And arts and humanities have already, always been there for me in my life. And uh, I often wonder uh, where we'd all be without them, especially during the COVID period. I, I spent about six months on my own before my, my wife joined me for the, the uh, part two. And in part one, I'm pretty sure I would have uh, struggled to get through and maintain my mental health and quite possibly my physical health without the creative practices that I engaged in or received. Paul, you coined the term health humanities, which I think was your term pretty much in terms of promoting that as rather than medical humanities. And I just wonder if this would be a really good place to start in talking about what the medical and the health humanities mean to you as an academic and a practitioner. Sure. I, I guess I'm less interested in coinage than in direction. Given that I've worked in healthcare for well, probably longer than I want to uh, think about now, back to the 80s, I was always struck by the way that the arts and humanities were peripheral, it seemed to me, to the main business in health and well-being. And, you know, the medical humanities have had a long and distinguished history in terms of medical trainings and looking at philosophy, history, arts, etc., and how they can be utilised for education, but also to illustrate if you like, the medical frame to, to health and well-being. I didn't feel with that that it was joyful enough and uh, inclusive enough. I felt that thinking about the application of the arts and humanities, thinking about the health side to that, not necessarily being driven through, if you like, a medical vision, but through all the different contributors possibly to the end result of getting health value from arts and humanities, which includes artists, includes the public. Uh, so I, I was really geared towards the business of creative public health and making the arts and humanities much more central, much more of a visible and go-to resource for the health of any nation. So not centralised healthcare as the only business of health and not professionalised healthcare as the only business of health, but the arts and humanities as a, if you will, a shadow health service. Paul, you, you talked about you know, working in healthcare since the 80s and now, of course, you, you work in academia. I wonder if you, if you tell us a little bit more about that journey. I like to think that the kind of the whole business of health humanities as an inclusive device and uh, as a, a drive towards more that can help people. I, I see my kind of combined health work and my arts and humanities stuff as crossing over at the point which we may just call the human and how we move forward uh, with this rather challenging business of life, how we can combine resources which aren't typically seen together. Most of my life has been about being in the wrong places with the right people. I don't tend to stay in my box 
and uh, tend to always want to find my way to somebody else's box and have a look at what's going on in there. And I think the the way that health tends to work or has tended to work traditionally, the way that arts and humanities has tended to work traditionally, is that they both keep in their institutional and disciplinary grammar. So, you know, the health is the health and the arts is the arts. And my life has been about, I guess, ignoring that kind of frame and mapping out of how, how you should be. So, you know, health, we're into the science side and the injectables and all that side. And the arts and humanities sometimes can seem a little bit aloof from the real world. And sometimes politicians forget that their children play musical instruments and get a lot from that and end up sort of, you know, arguing that the arts and humanities is even peripheral to the economy, which is absolutely not the case. So making the case for arts and humanities is one side of it for me, but making the case for the inter-animation and the crossover between health, arts and humanities on a very generous front as opposed to perhaps a clinical intervention perspective. Tell us about some of your favourite projects that illustrate how you've actually achieved that and also kind of how, how your university thinks about it then. <laughs> no one knows how universities think about anything here, as you well know, but um, I think the universities are trying to imagine what they should be up to and they don't always do that and the structures around them don't always keep the joy in the system, as it were. We found we found a confidence in metrics and dryness, it seems to me, over the last 10 years. So in terms of bringing joy in my life and projects which uh, have really done it for me, I suppose the most recent one would be the one that I've been leading with Ardman, uh, Wallace and Gromit and Sean the Sheep company in, in Bristol. Everybody knows them, of course. Or should know them. If you don't know them, you should know them. So we've been uh, we released new animations to support upstream young people's mental health in February, and within three months reached about 18 million. And one, the animations were co-created with young people, so not adult uh, adult or professional to broken people. It was more about co-creation with young people for young people. And if you, if you go to whatsupwitheveryone.com and, and have a look at the short animations and the platform supporting ideas around that the, the young people convey to us as important in meeting life's challenges, you'll see uh, an energy to that project um, and a joyfulness, I think, implicit in that work that makes me feel very much a lucky person to have been asked to head that up. I started off as a kid watching Take Art or Take Heart, sorry, with Tony Hart, when Ardman started really to get some grip through the, um, the wonderful figure of Morph, who continues this day. And the first meeting I had with Ardman, the co-founder, Dave Sproxton, sat next to me. I had to pinch myself because I was wondering how I got in this room uh, having watched Morph on TV all those years ago, actually working on a project uh, with Dave and his, his fabulous colleagues. 
It's really interesting because you are a professor of health humanities, which implies an academic discipline and assessment and teaching and learning and metrics of academic success. The thing that you cite as one of the things that you're most recently proud of is this beautiful, impactful thing of the arts going into the real world and communicating effectively about mental health. And we, we often talk about the interdisciplinary world as sitting in a very complicated space between disciplines, between practitioners and everything else. And you seem to be sitting in another different space between the universities and reaching out much more widely in a way that you communicate the things that you're passionate about. Is, is that fair? I'm not sure if it's my head or my body that is retained within the university walls. <laughs> um, but I sit in a number of places, Ian, as, I, as I'm sure you do. So we have, you know, the suite of research and mixed, mixed methods research within this uh, project. So although we kind of worked up the project to this kind of product, you know, the, these animations and the supporting uh, web page, it's also if you like analyzed and investigated as a product. So um, we, we carried out research on the on the reception of these uh, films by young people in relation to mental health literacy. Uh, we've been looking at issues around trust in the digital information in for young people. We're also looking at the emotion, uh, the emotive response in feedback uh, online through Insta, etc., um, and Twitter and so on looking at the feedback around the films as well. So you do the research side and all the deliveries that are needed there to, to help with policy drive, to, um, to underpin uh, and position this kind of creative public health initiative and this transiting between the resources within academe and the resources outside of academe. Um, and I think in many ways, one of the big reasons why the health of many nations doesn't get further, I think, is because they often leave the public out of public health. And uh, we often think of uh, recovering health as a professional business and only see the resources for recovery coming from the professional side as opposed to the people themselves. So I'm very interested in how much healthier a nation could be if we recognise that being healthy and recovering health is not about uh, our centralised services, however much they, they contribute, and we, we're all blessed in them in this country in terms of national service and so on, but how much more would be available if we saw the public more clearly as having lots of resources through arts and humanities engagement and the gifting of, of their resources to pe people around them. So I'm, I'm more interested in the, shall we say, collegial health initiatives. In other words, we look at the, the health of the nation, including our centralised health services, informal family carers who outnumber professional staff by some seven to one, and all our artists and theatre makers and, you know, visual artists and all the different modalities of the arts and humanities, uh, reading groups, people who write 
the things that you read, <laughs> um, see them more within the body of a nation's health um, and take seriously that we need all of those. I guess that's my core mission is to try to show and demonstrate that. I find very much as well that you seem to have a natural gift for building bridges between people. Um, I remember when we met once, you give, gave me a list of people I should talk to and ideas I should follow up on. Um, and actually, it was just really wonderful the way that you were able to position what you do and build bridges between people. And I still think that that's quite a, quite a unique gift. And I'm just sort of, I, I'm always in awe of the fact you managed to start that journey and wondering how you started that journey and and if you if other people wanted to follow on in your footsteps or, or make similar journeys, where you'd point them towards as a start. I think I recollect that conversation. It was a nice little cafe in Sheffield, wasn't it? Indeed. Yeah. Well, you're, you're only as good in your own work and often academe and leading in, in any area isolates you and sometimes the the way that you're rewarded is is simply you know as a unit of contribution and you know you did this and you led this and and so on but I think you're only ever as good as the people around you and whatever your mission or your ambition or desire if it isn't with other people I would suggest you forget about it because I think it's kind of a a benchmark for me that it's either with others or quite possibly irrelevant. I, I think there are probably some breakthroughs in individual work, which we, we're glad that people worked as isolates. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe that work would have only come through with a kind of almost a you know that individual focus um, without reference to others. But generally speaking, I, I I think we're much better as, as a combined force than we ever are as a, a unitary voice. So I think, it, I mean, the telling thing here, Ian, I think that's pertinent to your point is that, you know, that, that field of health humanities and that spread of ideas there that acted, acted as a joyful disruptor of medical humanities and, and probably pushed medical humanities some way to think about what, what they're up to. All of that is about bridges. All of that is about collaborative, not competitive framing. And I think I've tried to avoid that as much as I can, actually, and try to walk with other people because I have a strong sense that they're going somewhere with me and not, in a strange sort of way, not taking things personally. That part of the choice is actually uh, coming out of that particular frame. The joy for me of seeing this Ardman, for example, just one of the various projects I get into with, with others, is that with others phrase. You know, the young people, the clinical advisors, the researchers, Ardman, the creatives, the producers, the animators. Why wouldn't you be more into that and being amongst than being separate from I, I don't get it I don't I don't really relish that kind of the loss that comes sometimes and the stress that comes by going it alone 
on this topic of, of collaboration, uh, a piece of advice that you once gave me, or at least this is how I remember it. We were at a conference um, and it was to do with collaboration. And, and you said, you know, if you see a room full of people who are in a different discipline than you are and you're the odd one out, go in and see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, <laughs> I, um, I don't know. I think, I think it, it's probably problematic if those kind of judging your behaviour expect you to be in a certain way or do in a certain way. But I remember when I joined the medical school, health sciences uh, faculty at Nottingham back in about 2000, and I remember that the, the first week I walked across the campus and sat down with a professor of English literature. And we had a great discussion about the value of literature and language in healthcare. Professor Ron Carter, who um, sadly passed, um, great man, great man, an expert in spoken language and, and literature. We had a conversation about starting a, a new mission, really, which was in some senses foundational to health humanities, which was looking at how we can apply language and then subsequently literature in terms of health. And Ron's wife was in, in the healthcare side, and Ron had this wonderful insider-outsider characteristic. So he had this insight into health, but he's working in literature and language. And I realised that it's the insider-outsider thing that gets us to innovation um, and looking at things differently. And I went back to the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences, and I can't remember who asked me now, but somebody said, what, what are you up to? I, you know, I heard you over in the English department, you know, you're not in that department, you're in, in this department, and couldn't quite fit how English literature and language could be possibly relevant to the work of this unit. I just uh, carried on because I, I knew that there was some collaborative potential here that had not been previously available, and that excited me. So I ignored the message. The message is to stay in your patch, pal. So anyone out there working in the university sector, yeah, you still have to attend to your mortgage. <laughs> so you still have to kind of keep on track with the, the main mission of your department. But if you like data... Uh, take on board being in the wrong places with the right people, finding those corners where nobody else is looking, you'll find new pathways to doing some good in the world, I think. They need a bit of courage too. I mean, my experience of finding those sorts of places is uh, that you can sometimes feel a bit lonely if the rest of your peers don't understand what it is that you're trying to do. And in my case, trying to move between disciplines from medicine and science to learn and take on some work with the humanities, I kept feeling, still feel like I'm like Lady Godiva or the Emperor with no clothes or whatever the, the parable, the, you know, the Emperor with no clothes, that's the one. Somebody's going to point to me and go, but you're wearing no clothes. Well, I said, well, well that's a fabulous imagination, Ian. <laughs> just, uh, I just went off, on, I went off on a kind of a whole visual journey there. <laughs> I, hope, I hope it didn't involve me not wearing clothes. I don't think that would help you. Well, no, it, it was, it was part way going through Coventry again. But anyway, <laughs> um, all I can say is, um, I don't know if it's courage, but maybe it's uh, desire. 
as opposed to courage. Maybe it's a desire to see fresh and a desire to be joyful and a desire to go on to new territories or interesting territories more than courage. I, I remember giving a, a kind of a, I think I was talking to chief executives, NHS executives about compassion because I got quite interested in how arts and humanities add to the compassionate environment in healthcare and so on. And kind of got a bit blocked in that meeting, you know. Uh, I didn't mention randomised control trials every other sentence or something. Um, I didn't use that kind of language. And there's a bit of that kind of perseveration about, you know, the arts and humanities, the entertainment, you know, peripheral to the to the real business of the human body and the mind, you know, just add-ons or a bit of embroidery, cultural embroidery. I done my homework and I, I looked up the uh, the people that would be in the room. And of course, people now they announce themselves on the websites and everything, don't they? And they they give the little little bios, the little biographies. Everybody's writing biographies now. People don't realise they're writers. But anyway. I read their little biographies and I could go around the room and engage with each member and remind them how, how much they enjoy theatre or that they're in an orchestra or their hobby is in this area. And they all had laid out um, as part of their profile that the importance of the arts and humanities in their life. And I said to them, if it's good enough for you, why isn't it there for others? And why isn't that foregrounded in, in the way that you manage environments and consider the value of this for health and well-being? After all, you're benefiting from this and you're, you're showing that this is an important part of your life. So in some ways, I think it's, um, it's not about sometimes building bridges as much as perhaps connecting with individuals and encouraging them to show why there should be a bridge. And you underpin a lot of this with real rigour. I mean, I was very interested going through the Handbook of Health Humanities. It starts with a great deal of intellectual rigour and also has a great deal of application. And it feels to me that though you speak very much of the passion for changing things and doing things in the Arden project, that the rigour the, the, the rigor matters to you as well. I think there's kind of a passporting in social movements and in activism and engagement. And often it means you have to work with different audiences, with different expectations. Um, and the passporting is around knowledge, around evidence-based, you know, not just vision and mission. I try to contribute individually as an individual researcher and as a, a, a leader in research to do that. And I hope that other people can join in. And also uh, looking at narratives of people who are perhaps contributing, not from a research perspective, but from a resource and development or community working perspective and so forth, and giving them a voice too. So that handbook, the Routledge Handbook for Health Humanities was fabulous because of the, the crew, as it were, I think there are over 60 scholars or something like that, or more than that, involved and international perspectives, uh, different takes on, on uh, that mission. Um, and that, that's continuing now with the, the 
the Encyclopedia for Health Humanities, which is uh, in production. I'm, I'm going to have a white cat at some point and, and bigger screens, but I, I'm, I'm not interested in that type of leadership. I'm more interested in um, the, the generation of ideas and having those underpinned with evidence. That's, for me, exciting. And I like to preserve the true tradition of human knowledge, which pays full respect, non-hierarchical respect, to knowledge coming from words and numbers. So I'm, I'm really keen on understanding as well as explanation. I will probably fight to my dying breath to oppose the hierarchy of evidence that displaces important information in our societies. We need all the information, not just one half of it. I, I found it interesting how, Paul, in your answer to Ian's question, you circled back to collaboration. What, for, what are for you some essential components for successful collaboration? Uh, what makes certain collaborations a success? It's quite tricky, that one, isn't it? Um, your, your initiative is about conversation. And I find that in many ways, conversation is like an, it's both the seat of curiosity and conversation is also kind of prototype research. When you have conversations, share ideas and interests and passions and joys and possibilities and so on. The architecture of, of dialogue provokes and suggests there should be collaboration. So when I'm listening to other people who are talking about different areas of life and society and, and culture, I'm already engaged in that conversation, uh, in research. It's just not funded yet or you know, not, not obviously or demarcated as research. I guess when I've been teaching in philosophy of research and research methodology generally, I've tried to democratise research as the lived experience of everyday life and that everybody's actually researching all the time. It's just that we don't call it that. And people broadly also collaborating most of the time, Dieter, you know, sometimes without really noticing perhaps. So collaboration seems to be a, an environment as much as a behaviour. And it's recognising that and seeing that there is potential there for behaviours or kinds of work to come out of that. Uh, that that's broadly where I am. Usually I, when I do teach on um, things like paradigms of science and interpretation and so on, I try to actually situate the students in an everyday setting, such as going and buying groceries at a supermarket and how they buy those things. Uh, what do they look for? The colour? Is it freshness? Do they, do they break a carrot before they buy a pound of them? How do they engage with the, their groceries um, and just familiarise them, them with, you know, they are researchers at the supermarket. <laughs> 
and normalize that a little bit and get people to see the possibilities of, of sharpening that up, shall we say, with a good team, uh, people who've got expertise in particular areas that, that uh, will help produce or deliver answers or part answers. I have no idea, Dieter, if that is helpful at all or interesting, but I do think you're on a winner with the notion of conversations. And uh, I think that's why I wanted to join you today, because you recognise that probably this is the, uh, the unsung hero of uh, the whole research business. I'm just seeing some questions from the audience, which I'll try and weave in. But before I, I pick up on one of those... Um, can you remember your first major grant that you got and what inspired you to write it and how that kind of illustrates? Because that's the other thing is that you're is that academically you fund this. Um, and I'm just curious to think about a journey through from an idea to a grant and to, to delivery. Yeah, I had a visual image as soon as you said that. Um, which, which one was it? And where will I find it in this garden of brambles and, and, and failed, rejected applications? because um, that's what we all have to go through, is that um, people often don't see that with successful researchers, the actual volume of work they probably had to do to, to land the bigger grants. Let me see, where would, I, where would I start the story on that? I had lots of uh, what I call seeding grants, um, some of those were within a health, health setting. Early, an early grant that was pretty pivotal for me was I got a British Academy Award to do my PhD in literature. So, I, I mean, I trained in mental health nursing and I did a PhD in literature. That makes sense, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, but I got, this British, I got this British Academy Award to do that, that work. And that kind of kept me situated with my passions around the arts and humanities and, and gave me a bridge, financial bridge, into all the other later applications. I guess the breakthrough one for me, and this should encourage any early career researchers out there, right? The big money, you know, the big trumpet blast and, you know, extra increment in your pay if you're looking for big grants. Think about the little ones. I had a network grant early on from Arts Humanities Research Council in relation to the health humanities. That really rocked in terms of uh, changing dynamics, uh, bringing in uh, all collaborations never thought of before, um, and so on. So that was only a modest uh, amount of money. So don't undervalue that. It can really intensify your vision and your work with a bit more experience than you can, you can land the bigger ones. More recently, I've had sort of the bigger grants from AHRC and they, I mean, they, they're not the biggest funder, of course, you know, as a research council, but they are, they pack a punch. I've managed to have a few sort of circa million grants, you know. After a while, you feel like you're looking at what, what's the interest on that and will that help me to finish off paying that mortgage? No. No. <laughs> in fact, my children said with the first one, they said, does that mean we get more Christmas presents, Dad? <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. It's a notional million, I call it. That's probably um, the trap there. But I, I'm, I think I'm proudest of all of them. Every piece of public money, every help 
to bring health humanities into the front room, as it were. I'm grateful for every penny. One of our questioners asked a kind of pertinent question to how you started in all this, um, asks whether you got any experience of arts in the context of health being misunderstood as mostly therapeutic. And it's an, inter- it's an interesting wording because, of course, so much of what you do has that therapeutic angle to it as well. I think where, in answer to that, I think where I got, I guess, some of the opportunities and some of the ideas for expanding what might be possible actually was consequential to that, that feeling that things were on a bit of a narrow bandwidth. During my training in mental health, then I was very familiar with occupational health, very familiar with you know music therapy, there was uh, some bibliotherapy, and there was the art therapy. That therapizing side, I, we, we need that. We, need, we do need a skilled practice in relation to particular conditionality and, and so on. There's no doubt about that. And there's a lot of skill involved in, in tailoring arts and humanities to particular uh, groups and individuals and, and challenges. But because that seemed to be like the main kind of conversation, certainly, you know, when I was training through the 80s, I kind of thought, a narrow bandwidth? And, okay, what are the... People outside of occupational therapy and, you know, particular therapeutic lines of work. What about the rest of the population in that clinical environment? What are they doing using the arts and humanities? Do, does any of this apply to the actual workers or is it just patient or broken people focused? And I've been interested in recent years, as you may know, in, in uh, what I call uh, mutual recovery and um, trying to desegregate the beneficiaries in health, the healthcare setting. So it's like the experts don't have any health problems and they fix the broken ones. And I've been much more interested in how the arts and humanities offer, creative practices can offer um, routes to whole community recovery from stress burden and, uh, you know, illness burden and even caring burden for you know, family carers. How can we actually utilise the arts and humanities to improve environments, make them happier to be in, including workplaces, and to connect people in, if you will, the recovery process across and within communities, not just in a kind of a, uh, you're broken, I can fix you. Um, And I learned that. I learned that when I had depression working in a mental hospital, and I was uplifted by one of the patients who's a fantastic jazz musician playing music on the corridor. I was moping about as a practitioner, moping about and feeling quite low in mood. And the patient recovered me or began to impact positively on my life. So I'm thinking, who's recovering whom here? And um, why are we only attending to the obvious? Why aren't we bigger than that? That keeps me going, really. It keeps me thinking um, and doing, I think, in this area. I'm thinking, why are you just staying with the same old uh, when there could be so much more here? I hope that answers that wonderful question. It does. We've got a couple of other great questions. Um, I, I, I may not do this one justice, so I'm trying to unpick the meaning of 
Um, she said, uh, "Was grateful for you for your conversation and talked about you had highlighted the importance of language in health and the importance of language as a component of culture. And so, what role does culture play in health issues and the importance of culture in health-related issues?" I, I, Working, I'm trying to work my own way through the meaning of, of her question, and I just wonder, in the sense, I suppose, that your work is all around language and exploration and vision within an individual culture. I don't know. Am I, am I mangling that question? Probably somewhere in that question is, you know, this what comprises the, the area of interest here and um, what we're to do about it. I mean... I've found in my own work, if I can answer this way, that I've been involved on the humanities side and on the arts side and the health side. And sometimes when you're, if you like, picking through those or moving through those or in those areas, you're sometimes aware that the discourse can shift from health-related to arts-related to humanities-related to social science-related? And what are the divisions or the demarcations between social and cultural? Which kind of field of inquiry uh, comes to bear on that? You know, for example, language may often, researching language side, may often come through um, Research Council, for example, from the Economic and Social Research Council, but it doesn't have to. And literature is not literature without language. And uh, language can be performative and theatrical. It can be um, prosaic. It can be literary. The language we use in healthcare can be signal and transformative, even briefly, just a brief exchange. And you, you will know this in, in your own consultations Sometimes a word or even a silence or the silence or the gap between the words can be the, the mechanism, if you will, that makes the difference. For me, I think of culture and society both together as a kind of amazing fabrication. And it's a fabrication which we can shape, not necessarily govern, and influence perhaps and um, celebrate. We can perhaps rearrange some of it or suggest that we should focus on these elements uh, uh, more, more closely for the public benefit. And we may articulate our answers through science, social science, and what I call narrative science, you know, in the arts and humanities. So I don't know if that answers the question, but the question provoked a broad-based response from me, I think, in trying to give a sense the interconnective and the, the rich nature of, of what we're looking at here. Paul, in your answer, you were alluding to um, demarcations, disciplinary demarcations as well. And, and we've got a final question that came in. The, the, is there is a distinction between health humanities and critical health humanities? Well, I think it's probably... Um, for somebody who's really interested in, in kind of driving down on that. I mean, you'll get a bit like COVID, it seems, we're going to get all sorts of variants. <laughs> and uh, whether it's, you know, critical medical humanities or, you know, I've, I've seen kind of, um, if you like, the babies 
of health humanities, such as global health humanities and, uh, and other, other versions coming, coming through. What I would say is that more important than theoretical demarcation is alliance and recognition uh, across the different, if you like, territories that people, notions that people are working with and setting up. I think I'm, I'm less interested in chasing down the theoretical constructs here, um, although I will sometimes comment on them. I'm much more interested in what is passing by whilst we're doing that. So I'm more keen to be looking at pragmatic applications as opposed to that kind of, I guess, setting out the camp. And I think, you know, there are many others who can do that much better than me. I got a little bit tired of that sort of work when I, I wrote that book on uh, the philosophy of research, which I must admit, I had to lie down in a dark room after writing that. I don't think I've got anything particularly pertinent to add there on dis differentiating those fields, because I think those fields have not yet been around long enough to to get their wherewithal. Even health humanities is fresh out of the box. 2006, I think, I had a conversation with AHRC about this, and 2010 wrote with colleagues the, um, the kind of first field description and then built on that. I'm, I'm much more interested in perhaps what somebody else will write about that in, in 30 years' time. Does that leave us to maybe thinking about the future, Paul, just as a final thought? You know, you say 30 years' time, but what would you still hope to achieve in the future? It can be in 30 years' time or it could be nearer. Like what are some of the, the, the hopes that you still hope to achieve in your work around arts, humanities and health? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that holograms and um, robots will be involved. I'm not sure yet. Uh, how fun. My wife's actually asked me if I'll get one of those robot um, vacuum cleaners. I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. I think I'm going to invest in that. In 30 years' time, how much will this crossover in uh, the tech side and the uh, the digital? We've seen ABBA now, they've become post-human. And uh, even before they shuffle out of their mortal coil, they're, they're going to have these performances in 3D and holograph in their theatre. So I, I'm expecting arts and humanities to evolve in new and exciting and incredibly powerful ways. I don't actually have a, a dismal view of that. I think that bringing arts and humanities resources to people, allowing more personalised resources and resources that are not just for the uh, info-rich, but also for the info-poor, tackling how arts and humanities resources can actually apply and be mobilised uh, across um, health inequalities and uh, social inequalities. Uh, these are things which get me up in the morning. The Ardman thing was a signal for the future to me working with creative industries and trying to encourage creative industries to be part of the infrastructure, if you will, that we call health. And that we start 
to look outside of the hospital walls or the clinical walls and see the healing zone or the recovery zone or the, the way we maintain, sustain uh, or return to health as being a much more, should we say, intense but diffuse matter that uh, we'll stop thinking about health in those small geographies of hospitals, clinics and ambulances and things. And we'll think of health as uh, an all-encompassing and uh, multiply resourced possibility. Um, and maybe the digital and the future digital and robotics and all the other stuff will bring us to yeah, new heights in that mission, really. I'm open to be played to at the bedside, you know, by by a robot violinist. The AI is there, you know, that actually have a good conversation. <laughs> that's that's a lovely place to finish. And the visions of a robot violinist playing us when we need our company in, in the hospital bed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, and to your audience, uh, Ian, and Dieter, and David, and uh, I hope it was a, a good chat. And I, I feel lifted. I have, I have COVID protection from from this conversation today. I hope. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to conversations about arts, humanities, and health. Join us for the next episode. Dieter and Ian will be joined by Dr. Keisha Ray from the McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. Dita and Ian will talk with Keisha about her important work in black bioethics. You will hear about the journey that led to Keisha studying black people's health, how she experiences the relationship between humanities and medicine, and what she wants the world to know about black health. To stay up to date with news of season two, you can follow us on Twitter at Convo Arts Health. This episode of Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health was produced by me, David Brown. Until next time, 